Chapter Fifty Two of Uncle Silas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Silas by J. Sheridan Le Venue. Chapter Fifty Two. The Picture of a Wolf. I went down that evening to the sitting room which had been assigned to Milly and me, in search of a book my good Mary Quince always attending me. The door was a little open, and I was startled by the light of a candle proceeding from the fireside, together with a considerable aroma of tobacco and brandy. On my little work-table, which he had drawn beside the hearth, lay Dudley's pipe, his brandy-flask, and an empty tumbler, and he was sitting with one foot on the fender, his elbow on his knee, and his head in his hand, weeping. His back being a little towards the door, he did not perceive us, and we saw him rub his knuckles in his eyes, and heard the sounds of his selfish lamentations. Mary and I stole away quietly, leaving him in possession, wondering when he was to leave the house, according to the sentence which I had heard pronounced upon him. I was delighted to see old Giblets quietly strapping his luggage in the hall, and heard from him in a whisper that he was to leave that evening by rail. He did not know whither. About half an hour afterwards, Mary Quince, going out to reconnoiter, heard from old Wyatt in the lobby that he had just started to meet the train. Blessed be heaven for that deliverance. An evil spirit had been cast out, and the house looked lighter and happier. It was not until I sat down in the quiet of my room that the scenes and images of that agitating day began to move before my memory in orderly procession, and for the first time I appreciated, with a stunning sense of horror and a perfect rapture of thanksgiving, the value of my escape and the immensity of the danger which had threatened me. It may have been miserable weakness, I think it was, but I was young, nervous, and afflicted with a troublesome sort of conscience which occasionally went mad and insisted, in small things as well as great, upon sacrifices, which my reason now assured me were absurd. Of Dudley I had a perfect horror, and yet had that system of solicitation, that dreadful and direct appeal to my compassion, that placing of my feeble girlhood in the seat of the arbiter of my aged uncle's hopes or despairs, been long persisted in, my resistance might have been worn out, who can tell, and I self-sacrificed. Just as criminals in Germany are teased and watched and cross-examined year after year, incessantly, into a sort of madness, and worn out with the suspense, the iteration, the self-restraint and insupportable fatigue, they at last cut all short, accuse themselves, and go infinitely relieved to the scaffold. You may guess, then, for me, nervous, self-diffident, and alone, how intense was the comfort of knowing that Dudley was actually married, and the harrowing importunity which had just commenced forever silenced. That night I saw my uncle. I pitied him, though I feared him. I was longing to tell him how anxious I was to help him, if he could only point out the way. It was in substance what I had already said but now strongly urged. He brightened. He sat up perpendicularly in his chair with a countenance, 
not weak or fatuous now, but resolute and searching, and which contracted into dark thought or calculation as I talked. I dare say I spoke confusedly enough. I was always nervous in his presence. There was, I fancy, something mesmeric in the odd sort of influence which, without effort, he exercised over my imagination. Sometimes this grew into a dismal panic, and Uncle Silas, polished, mild, seemed unaccountably horrible to me. Then it was no longer an accidental fascination of electrobiology. It was something more. His nature was incomprehensible by me. He was without the nobleness, without the freshness, without the softness, without the frivolities of such human nature as I had experienced, either within myself or in other persons. I instinctively felt that appeals to sympathies or feelings could no more affect him than a marble monument. He seemed to accommodate his conversation to the moral structures of others, just as spirits are said to assume the shape of mortals. There were the sensualities of the gourmet for his body, and there ended his human nature, as it seemed to me. Through that semi-transparent structure, I thought I could now and then discern the light or the glare of his inner life. But I understood it not. He never scoffed at what was good or noble. His hardest critic could not nail him to one such sentence. And yet it seemed, somehow, to me, that his unknown nature was a systematic blasphemy against it all. If fiend he was, he was something higher than the garrulous and withal feeble demon of Goethe. He assumed the limbs and features of our mortal nature, he shrouded his own, and was a profoundly reticent Mephistopheles. Gentle he had been to me, kindly he had nearly always spoken, but it seemed like the mild talk of one of those goblins of the desert, whom Asiatic superstition tells of, who appear in friendly shapes to stragglers from the caravan, beckon to them from afar, call them by their names, and lead them where they are found no more. Was, then, all his kindness but a phosphoric radiance covering something colder and more awful than the grave? It is very noble of you, Maud. It is angelic. Your sympathy with a ruined and despairing old man. But I fear you will recoil. I tell you frankly that less than twenty thousand pounds will not extricate me from the quag of ruin in which I am entangled, lost. Recoil? Far from it. I'll do it. There must be some way. Enough, my fair young protectress. Celestial enthusiast, enough. Though you do not, yet I recoil. I could not bring myself to accept this sacrifice. What signifies, even to me, my extrication? I lie a mangled wretch, with fifty mortal wounds in my crown. What avails the healing of one wound, when there are so many beyond all cure? Better to let me perish where I fall, and reserve your money for the worthier objects, whom, perhaps hereafter, may avail to save. But I will do this, I must. I cannot see you suffer with the power in my hands, unemployed to help you. I exclaimed. Enough, dear Maud. The will is here. Enough. 
There is balm in your compassion and good will. Leave me, ministering angel. For the present I cannot. If you will, we can talk of it again. Good night. And so we parted. The attorney of Feltram, I afterwards heard, was with him nearly all that night, trying in vain to devise by their joint ingenuity any means by which I might tie myself up. But there were none. I could not bind myself. I was myself full of the hope of helping him. What was this sum to me, great as it seemed? Truly nothing. I could have spared it, and never felt the loss. I took up a large quattro with colored prints, one of the few books I had brought with me from dear old Knoll. Too much excited to hope for sleep in bed, I opened it and turned over the leaves, my mind still full of Uncle Silas and the sum I had hoped to help him with. Unaccountably, one of those colored engravings arrested my attention. It represented the solemn solitude of a lofty forest. A girl, in Swiss costume, was flying in terror, and as she fled, flinging a piece of meat behind her, which she had taken from a little market-basket hanging upon her arm, through the glade a pack of wolves were pursuing her. The narrative told that on her return homeward with her marketing she had been chased by wolves, and barely escaped by flying at her utmost speed, from time to time retarding, as she did so, the pursuit by throwing, piece by piece, the contents of her basket, in her wake, to be devoured and fought for by the famished beasts of prey. This print had seized my imagination. I looked with a curious interest on the print. Something in the disposition of the trees, their great height, and rude boughs interlacing, and awful shadows beneath, reminded me of a portion of the windmill wood where Milly and I had often rambled. Then I looked at the figure of the poor girl, flying for her life, and glancing terrified over her shoulder. Then I gazed on the gaping, murderous pack, and the hoary brute that led the van, and then I leaned back in my chair, and I thought, perhaps some latent association suggested what seemed a thing so unlikely, of a fine print in my portfolio from Van Dyck's noble picture of Belisarius. Idly, I traced with my pencil, as I leaned back, on an envelope that lay upon the table, this little inscription. It was mere fiddling, and, absurd as it looked, there was nothing but an honest meaning in it. Twenty thousand pounds. Date Obolum Belisario. My dear father had translated the little Latin inscription for me, and I had written it down as a sort of exercise of memory and also, perhaps, as expressive of that sort of compassion which my uncle's fall and miserable fate excited invariably in me. So I threw this queer little memorandum upon the open leaf of the book, and again the flight, the pursuit, and the bait to stay it engaged my eye, and I heard a voice near the hearthstone, as I thought, say, in a stern whisper, "'Fly the fangs of Belisarius!' "'What's that?' said I, turning sharply to Mary Quince. Mary rose from her work at the fireside, staring at me with that odd sort of frown that accompanies fear and curiosity. "'You spoke. Did you speak?' I said, catching her by the arm, very much frightened myself. "'No, miss. No, dear.' 
answered she, plainly thinking that I was a little wrong in my head. There could be no doubt it was a trick of the imagination, and yet to this hour I could recognize that clear stern voice among thousands, were it to speak again. Jaded, after a night of broken sleep and much agitation, I was summoned next morning to my uncle's room. He received me oddly, I thought. His manner had changed and made an uncomfortable impression upon me. He was gentle, kind, smiling, submissive as usual, but it seemed to me that he experienced, henceforth, toward me the same half-superstitious repulsion which I had always felt from him. Dream or voice or vision which had done it. There seemed to be an unconscious antipathy and fear. When he thought I was not looking, his eyes were sometimes grimly fixed for a moment upon me. When I looked at him, his eyes were upon the book before him. And when he spoke, a person not heeding what he uttered would have fancied that he was reading aloud from it. There was nothing tangible but this shrinking from the encounter of our eyes. I said he was kind as usual. He was even more so. But there was this new sign of our silently repellent natures. Dislike it could not be. I knew I longed to serve him. Was it shame? Was there not a shade of horror in it? I have not slept, said he. For me the night has passed in thought, and the fruit of it is this. I cannot, Maud, accept your noble offer. I am very sorry. I exclaimed, in all honesty. I know it, my dear niece, and appreciate your goodness, but there are many reasons, none of them, I trust, ignoble, and which together render it impossible. No, it would be misunderstood. My honor shall not be impugned. But, sir, that could not be. You have never proposed it. It would be all from first to last— my doing true dear maud but i know alas more of this evil and slanderous world than your happy inexperience can do who will receive our testimony none no not one the difficulty the insuperable moral difficulty is this that i should expose myself to the plausible imputations of having worked upon you unduly for this end and more that i could not hold myself quite free from blame it is your voluntary goodness maud but you are young inexperienced and it is i hold it my duty to stand between you and any dealing with your property at so unripe an age some people may call this quixotic in my mind it is an imperious mandate of conscience and i peremptorily refuse to disobey it although within three weeks an execution will be in this house i did not quite know what an execution meant but from two harrowing novels with whose distress i was familiar i knew that it indicated some direful process of legal torture and spoliation oh uncle i-oh sir you cannot allow this thing to happen what will people say of me and-and there is poor milly and everything think what it will be it cannot be helped you cannot help it maud listen to me there will be an execution here i cannot say 
exactly how soon, but I think in a little more than a fortnight. I must provide for your comfort. You must leave. I have arranged that you shall join Milly, for the present in France, till I have time to look about me. You had better, I think, write to your cousin, Lady Knollys. She, with all her oddities, has a heart. Can you say, Maud, that I have been kind? You have never been anything but kind, I exclaimed. That I have been self-denying when you made me a generous offer, he continued. That I now act to spare you pain. You may tell her, not as a message from me, but as a fact, that I am seriously thinking of vacating my guardianship, that I feel I have done her an injustice, and that, so soon as my mind is a little less tortured, I shall endeavor to effect a reconciliation with her, and would wish ultimately to transfer the care of your person and education to her. You may say I have no longer an interest even in vindicating my name. My son has wrecked himself by a marriage. I forgot to tell you he stopped at Feltram, and this morning wrote to pray a parting interview. If I grant it, it shall be the last. I shall never see him, or correspond with him, or... The old man seemed much overcome, and he held his handkerchief to his eyes. He and his wife are, I understand, about to immigrate. The sooner the better, he resumed bitterly. Deeply, Maud, I regret having tolerated his suit to you, even for a moment. Had I thought it over, as I did the whole case last night, nothing could have induced me to permit it. But I have lived for so long, like a monk in his cell, my wants and observations limited to the narrow compass of this chamber, that my knowledge of the world has died out with my youth and my hopes, and I did not, as I thought to have done, considered many objections. Therefore, dear Maud, on this one subject, I entreat, be silent. Its discussion can affect nothing now. I was wrong, and frankly ask you to forget my mistake. I had been on the point of writing to Lady Knollys on this odious subject, when happily it was set at rest by the disclosure of yesterday, and being so, I could have no difficulty in acceding to my uncle's request. He was conceding so much that I could not withhold so trifling a concession in return. I hope Monica will continue to be kind to poor Milly after I am gone. Here there were a few seconds of meditation. Maud, you will not, I think, refuse to convey the substance of what I have just said in a letter to Lady Knollys and perhaps you would have no objection to let me see it when it is written. It will prevent the possibility of its containing any misconception of what I have just spoken. And, Maud, you won't forget to say 
whether I have been kind. It would be a satisfaction to me to know that Monica was assured that I never either teased or bullied my young ward. With these words he dismissed me, and forthwith I completed such a letter as would quite embody what he had said, and in my own glowing terms, being in high good humor with Uncle Silas, recorded my estimate of his gentleness and good nature. And when I submitted it to him, he expressed his admiration of what he was pleased to call my cleverness in so exactly conveying what he wished, and his gratitude for the handsome terms in which I had spoken of my old guardian. End of chapter 52